Voices for Justice is a podcast that uses adult language and discusses sensitive and potentially triggering topics, including violence, abuse, and murder. This podcast may not be appropriate for younger audiences. All parties are innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. Some names have been changed or omitted per their request or for safety purposes. Listener discretion is advised. My name is Sarah Turney, and this is Voices for Justice. to explain the delay in getting this episode out. Something happened. When I launched the first episode, I was already putting this one together, but I was pretty sure I had some dates wrong and wanted clarification on a few things. So I requested records from the police to reference as I went along, but I ended up getting a lot more than I expected, about 3,000 pages, and I realized that I had to make it through this stack of papers before I could continue making the podcast. Not only so I actually understood this story better, but also in hopes of getting information specifically for this episode. But what I found was absolutely astounding. In these documents was not only the investigation of Alyssa's disappearance, but transcripts and summaries of audio and surveillance created by my father that date back to the 1970s. In addition, there's a large collection of essays, letters, and lawsuits. From these 3,000 pages, I typed up over 200 pages of notes. Although I anticipate this story to continue to evolve as it always has, I have a better, more in-depth understanding of the series of events that led up to Alyssa's disappearance than I ever have, and I'm as ready as I ever will be to share this story with you. In this episode, I'm going to give you an overview of my father's life before he met my and Alyssa's mother. If you didn't catch it in episode 1, Our father is the only investigative lead in Alyssa's case, and it's no secret that my brothers and I fully believe that he killed and abused Alyssa. Although the goal of this podcast is not to focus solely on him and his actions, I think that understanding the circumstances that made him who he is today and what makes him tick is important for the purposes of investigating theories related to him murdering and abusing Alyssa. As I research, I am finding what I believe to be an escalation of our father's behavior that dates back to his childhood. The resources used in this podcast are a combination of police interviews, my own interviews, and transcripts and summaries of the 30-plus year collection of audio and videotapes my father had been keeping. A large amount of this comes from the passive recording system he installed on our home phone sometime in the 1970s. It automatically recorded every phone call coming in and every call going out as soon as you lifted the receiver. This is something his father and brother reportedly had on their home phones as well. And you know what, Dad? My dad's case, too. Did I ever tell you that? We know about that, right? I did I tell you that? This is my cousin Jamie discussing her father, my father's brother, James. I don't, I don't know if I remember that. He, he did phone tapes, videotapes, oh, both? Yeah, my dad had um, video cameras in our, bed, in our home. episode, I will be weaving in clips from two of my cousins. One is David Garman, the son of my father's sister, Shirley. David was there through it all and absolutely adored my father. Here's David, nearly 50 years ago, in the 1970s, leading an annual Easter egg hunt with the family. The animal noises are courtesy of my brothers, who are a few years younger than David. Hi, this, my name is David Garman, and here's, and here's the annual Easter egg hunt, and here's, and here's David would later move in with my father, Alyssa, and I in the late 90s. At this time, he still adored our father. Until one night, he found a pornographic video of Alyssa and left our lives abruptly. We will discuss this tape in detail later in the podcast. The other cousin that you heard from in the first clip is Jamie Turney. Jamie is the daughter of my father's brother, James, and his wife, Donna. She also adored my father and was heavily involved with our family until she, too, had a disturbing incident with him 
David and Jamie are important witnesses in Alyssa's story, and they went through a similar revelation that I did. We all thought my father was innocent until the evidence was stacked too high against him. But let's start at the beginning of this story. I'm going to take you way back to 1948. Howdy Doody was loved by children across the U.S. We were given the gift of the Scrabble board game. A gallon of gas cost an average of 26 cents. And my father, Michael Roy Turney, was born to Jean and Ma Dean Turney in Phoenix, Arizona. The youngest of four kids, my father had two older sisters, Shirley and Norma Jean, and one older brother, James. By all accounts, my father's family was pretty poor. My grandmother Maudine was a homemaker, and my grandfather Jean was a roofer by trade, but made money on the side boxing and playing guitar. Some say the family was so destitute that my Uncle James would steal food and hunt small game to help feed the family. My father also worked on nearby farms to contribute to the family's expenses until he was old enough to work at a local fast food chain. But according to most of the family, it seems as if James was very much a father figure to his siblings. I remember my dad being the provider, so his brothers and sisters saw him as the guy who brought the food home. They saw him as the role of father almost more than brother and provider and protector for them. You know, if anything happened, if anybody picked on, if anybody, anything went south, my dad was the first person to show up and, you know, take care of business. So that's how they saw him, and that's the position they put him in in their family. He was like, he was like the real head of their family, not Papa. Some family members believe that in addition to my father and uncle contributing to the family expenses, that they had some help along the way from relatives in high places. My great-grandmother on my father's side was related to Wesley Bolin. Although I couldn't find the exact connection to Wesley, even after hours and hours of following leaves on Ancestry.com, I did find the connection to the Bolins, and David remembers it quite well, and so do others. Wesley Bolin served the shortest term as the governor of Arizona at only five months, but he also served the longest term as the Secretary of State of Arizona for 28 years. David and many others believe that our family ties to Wesley Bolin and his many connections helped the family early on, and even got our grandfather out of some pretty big trouble. Mom always, you know, said that if there was ever a situation, I remember, like, you know, when Papa didn't have a job or something like that, you know, between music and, you know, roofing, that kind of thing. If there was ever money to be made, all you had to just make a phone call, that kind of thing. Or circumstance, you know, like Papa used to get in trouble with, you know, all the time because of the companies. He would never spend time in jail or prison, that kind of thing. Some of the shit he pulled, um, I guess it was some pretty bad stuff. Um, one time he almost killed a person with his fist, I guess. One time, uh, this was back in, uh, Right after, I guess, James was born, he uh, got in a fistfight with a, a person, almost killed a person, and um, that charge went away, I guess. Um, and that was because of Grandma Leahy. You know, Leahy, Grandma Leahy had a lot of pull. Um, you know, her husband was a senator. He was a former uh, Arizona Ranger, you know, with uh, Carl Hayden. Um you know, these are people that are very prominent, powerful figures in the you know, state of Arizona, uh, and even before the state, you know, was territory. I wish this brought up more answers than questions, but this connection is definitely something I'm keeping in mind for when we analyze Alyssa's case later on. Growing up, my father told me stories about him sitting outside of his father's bedroom as a kid and listening to him play music night after night. He'd listen and wish he could be in the room with him, learning the chords. And after years of anguish, Jean finally opened that door one night and handed him an old guitar. Eventually, Jean would bring both my father and my Uncle James into the music business, and they would perform as a family. We got a little tune given up here that uh, Mike and I used to play together quite a lot. Here we go. In addition to playing guitar, my father was extremely interested in athletics. Even my older brothers remember him being able to walk the entire block on his hands. When he was a kid, he loved baseball. Many say that he was so good he could have gone pro. 
My father said that he was never able to make this happen due to his family moving frequently and him not being able to attend practice or games. Here's David discussing what he remembers. Uh, he coached the league. He was a great baseball player. Dad could have played football, you know, if he wanted to. Uh, back in the, you know, when he was a young man, you know, he was an exceptional athlete. Yeah, you that's know, what he, he would just, always uh, say. That's that's true story. Yeah, so you know, uh, incredible. You know, uh, it's just um, somehow or another something happened. Uh, I'm not sure what happened in his life when he was a young man or a young boy. After baseball, my Uncle James taught my father martial arts. But family members say it got to his head. And allegedly, soon after he'd gone through some training, he got into a really bad fight with a man that left the man paralyzed. I wish I could say that this is as deep and dark as the family rumors go. But as I read through the police reports and began speaking to family members, some for the first time in decades, I realized that the abuse in my family probably wasn't limited to just Alyssa. Many claim that my grandfather was a pretty bad alcoholic and was quite abusive. My Aunt Norma reports that her and her siblings were made to stand at attention for hours by their father, and if they moved a muscle, they'd get beat with a belt. She also stated that both her and my father were sexually abused by their father. But there are stories of all four kids being abused by both parents. You know, some of the secrets that I did find about the attorneys, you know, dealing with my grandfather. Yeah, your grandfather, you know, Papa, you know, John Turney. Yeah. You know, what else did he do? You know, um, you know, with not only, uh, you know, Aunt Norma, you know, uh, your aunt, and my mother, your aunt, truly, you know, did he do something with your dad? You know, so, I, I, I mean, it's, in a best case, that, that could be, you know, uh, I'm not making any excuse for, you know, his future action. But it, it's, it's, there's some mitigating factors there, you know. So, I mean, it's, uh, I don't know. You know, I've, I've been doing a lot of heavy thinking here in the last three, four years, you know, about what's been going on. And, uh, you know, and it's, it's just, it's just heartbreaking. Despite allegedly being abused by his father, my father places a lot of blame on his brother James for being the source of so much pain and anguish. Even when I spoke with my father in 2017, it's very obvious that he still holds this grudge against his brother. I thought you guys knew me better than that. One opportunity I had to kill somebody that I probably could kill now, and I thought about that split second when I chose not to kill him after he shot his wife only because he was killed. It's, it's not within my demeanor. Killing other people? You learn that in the military. Okay. He says James was favored by their mother, and that it was due to his brother's terrible behavior that they moved so much and he couldn't pursue that pro baseball career. He also said James was just cruel to him. In the police reports, my father states that James paid kids in the neighborhood to beat him up. He also said that every time he came home, he had to be quick and hide from James because more often than not, he was waiting at home with a BB gun, ready to shoot him when he walked through the door. This sibling rivalry would grow into something darker and span their whole lives. But despite how much they fought, most everyone agrees that my father and James would remain loyal to each other no matter what. And your dad, for years, I know it, uh... They, you know, with James, they had a kind of a tumultuous relationship. It was kind of a weird relationship, you know, from my understanding that within the family it was kind of known uh, like a love-hate deal. I'm not sure what the all stand for. My mom would always tell me that it was, uh, it dealt with money or something like that. I'm not sure exactly, but anyway, you know, but your dad was always very, you know, loyal to your, you know, uh, to James and, and James always loyal to Mike in the end, no matter what. This loyalty will be proven over time as the brothers deal with a variety of situations together, including an alleged attempted murder, multiple affairs, each of them losing a stepchild, and both being accused of sexually abusing their children. The stories that I've heard were your dad wanted to be just like my dad. And um, so I don't know. I mean, maybe it's possible. It's possible your dad was molested like mine. And it's possible that that's what set off this 
ability for them to see their children step past whatever nieces and somebody that was appropriate to touch in, in an appropriate way. Right. But I will say, I, I believe both of them are capable of some pretty thick shit. But my father will still go on to insist that he is not the dangerous one, that it was and always has been James. Listen to what my father told David. Now, your dad told me a story. He he said he witnessed James uh, when he was 17 years old or 18 years old. James, when he was 18, flat out shoot somebody, murder him, shoot him in the head. And Jamie has similar stories. But your dad wrote me at least one letter, maybe two, and, at least, and, and I want to say in at least one of those letters, he told me or offered to show me where all the bodies were in the desert that he'd helped my dad dispose of. He told me he knew where all the bodies were, and if I ever wanted to see him, he'd take me around, he'd show me where these bodies were. But I have to say, I spoke to James for the first time in about 20 years, and James didn't scare me. He sounded really normal much more normal than any conversation I've had with my father in the past 20 years. And his stories did not waver. Whether or not he's just a better manipulator than my father remains to be seen. But I think it's fair to say that brother or father figure, James most certainly had an influence on my father's life. But we will come back to James in a bit. This episode of Voices for Justice is sponsored by June's Journey. Everyone loves a good mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's journey. In this game, you step into the role as June Parker and search for hidden clues to uncover the mystery of your sister's murder. You engage your observation skills to quickly uncover key pieces of information that lead to chapters of mystery, danger, and romance. I've been playing June's journey for a long time. And yes, I love uncovering hidden objects in these really fun scenes but I also like putting together the pieces of this puzzle. I've said it before and I'll say it again, one of my favorite parts of playing June's Journey is chatting and playing with or against, if I'm honest, usually I like playing against other players by joining a detective club. And if that's not enough for you, you can join a detective league to put your skills to the test. I am also deep into building my island. And I mean deep, you guys. I've been playing for a very long time and it's just really fun to see it grow. I usually find myself playing in little breaks during the day or at night before I go to bed. If you like games, if you like solving mysteries, I really think you're going to like June's Journey. Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. This episode of Voices for Justice is sponsored by Quince. Quince has transformed how I shop. I'm not gonna lie, I don't love paying extravagant prices for things that don't last. But imagine upgrading your wardrobe with luxury essentials at unbeatable prices. They offer things like a 100% Mongolian cashmere sweater for $50, washable silk tops, and timeless 14 karat gold jewelry. And the best part is all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Basically what they do is partner with the top factories, that cuts out the cost of the middleman. That way they can pass on the savings to us. And what I really love is that Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices. I have a ton of stuff from Quince. Right now I'm really on a mission to just have some great basics in my closet. So I picked up a lot of t-shirts, some tank tops, and I definitely got a 100% mulberry silk pillowcase. It is absolutely worth it. Indulge in affordable luxury. Go to quince.com justice for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's q-u-i-n-c-e dot justice to get free shipping and 365-day returns. quince.com justice. In 1968, my father was dating his childhood sweetheart Cheryl when he was drafted into the U.S. military. He still claims he was in Vietnam, but when he was put under oath at his trial, the judge asked him, and he admitted that he never went to Vietnam. What we do know is that his tour lasted 21 months, he had basic training at Fort Lewis in Washington, advanced artillery training at Fort Still in Oklahoma, chemical and biological warfare training in Fort McClelland in Virginia, and was stationed at Fort Irwin in California. He was separated from the U.S. Army in February of 1970 with an honorable discharge and a rank of E-5, 
which would have made him a sergeant, four ranks above a private. When he was released, he married his first wife, Cheryl, and immediately began his position as a Maricopa County deputy sheriff and held that position until 1974. Something I want to explore in this podcast is whether or not my father's and my family's ties to law enforcement have affected Alyssa's case. I couldn't find a lot about my father's time as a deputy sheriff, but the police found an old friend of my father's and a former colleague at the sheriff's department, Aaron Pratt. They called Aaron to ask about my father and what he was like as a cop. Aaron said he was a good cop, but he had a problem when he felt crossed by someone that he was never able to just let it go. Aaron describes a lengthy battle my father had with one of his superiors that turned into a long-standing obsession of my father's. But aside from this, Aaron says my father was well-respected by his co-workers. So the police also send Aaron an essay written by my father. It details a hostage negotiation situation that involved my father being the sole hero saving two children while his fellow officers weren't able to rise to the occasion. My father states that he, quote, saved all their asses, and taunts the supervisor in the essay, stating that he was afraid of the perpetrator, despite the fact that it was a woman. Aaron emphatically denies that there was ever a situation in which my father saved the lives of other officers, and he further states, Mike's comments about various people, including myself, are not even close to being accurate. My father tells another story about being a cop. In Alyssa's case file is a report of the officers reviewing a call my father recorded between him and the Phoenix Police Department regarding Alyssa's case. The tricky thing about these audio tapes is that they aren't always labeled with a date, so sometimes you just have to use context clues. So, from what I can gather, this conversation happened sometime between 2007 and 2008. What I'm about to read you is directly from the summary written by the police officer reviewing the tape. Michael Roy Turney tells the officer that while working as a sheriff deputy in 1972, he and his partner observed a plane with no lights land at 59th Avenue and Bell Road in Phoenix, Arizona. Mike inspected the plane and found it packed wall to wall with brown packages. Mike says that within 15 minutes, the feds showed up and escorted the plane away. The story implies that a clandestine drug delivery was arranged and then covered up by federal authorities. Mike also mentions Don Bowles, a reporter that was assassinated in Phoenix in 1976. Mike says that Bowles was working on a story that implicated Barry Goldwater, the Phoenix police, and other politicians for taking bribes from Mexican drug cartels. Mike knew Don Bowles personally. Mike also remarks that his brother, James Turney, is an absolute criminal who needed to go to prison. Mike remarks that he is related to Wesley Bolin, an Arizona politician, former Secretary of State, and governor. Mike says that political influence was used to keep his brother out of prison. The call eventually ends. Okay, so there's a lot to break down here. First, who speaks to the police like this? You are calling about your missing daughter, but you go on to talk about potentially very serious accusations against federal agencies, the political assassination of a journalist, and then you segue into your brother being a criminal who has evaded capture due to political ties. Is he trying to set the scene that he knows police are corrupt? Or is he trying to implicate his brother? I think it could be both. But if my father really did see things like this, However unlikely, maybe he really did make some friends in high places during his time in law enforcement. If we combine this with the supposed political ties in Arizona, it could be possible that they are still affecting Alyssa's case today. In 1974, my father resigned from his position as deputy sheriff. He told some people, including me, that he resigned because the politics of police work were just too much for him. He was sick of busting kids for pot and seeing real criminals run free. He told other people he did it for his wife, Cheryl, because she was worried about his safety. But most people believe it was because he was caught tampering with the crime scene when his brother James shot his wife, Donna. A detective that worked on Alyssa's case for 10 years, Detective William Anderson, described my father's behavior at the scene of Donna's shooting as grossly inappropriate. Something that hasn't been discussed much is my father's obsession with Donna. 
I believe that this relationship sparked a lifelong obsession with having sexual desires for women he could not have and should not go after. We will explore this throughout the entirety of the podcast, but for now, let's start with Donna. I have two essays written by my father that I want to go over. Both discuss Donna in detail. Rather than describe how bizarre this first essay is, I'm reading directly from the police report. This is an essay titled Cycles of Abuse. It is a bizarre fragment told in the first person. The context of writing places it in the voice of James Turney's ex-wife, Donna Russell. However, the cadences in phaseology are Mike Turney's. Apparently, Mike Turney was writing this essay from his ex-sister-in-law's perspective. One section reads, I went from a brief childhood straight to motherhood, and the duties of the wife of a man just as demanding of my energy to make money as my mother. Our personal relationship was anything but storybook. Everything was centered around his personal wants and desires. We never had a sexual exchange that could have been called making love. It was more likened to what I imagine early humans must have experienced to propagate our species. There was no for or after sexual play to arouse or show affection. He always took me, even before my body could produce the fluids to lessen the pain. It was as though he was angry or likened to the rage I experienced on February 10, 1974. I had experienced his anger many times, but never witnessed his rage. I had heard his brother speak of his rage, but I thought it to be no more than the anger I had seen. Although this essay may be a little confusing to hear, I think it's important to note how obsessed my father was with Donna, to the point that he wrote this essay from her perspective describing sexual relations between her and my father's brother. It's extremely strange, to say the least. The date my father is referencing in this essay is the day Donna was shot by my Uncle James. The next essay describes the shooting in detail, along with some other very strange things. This one is long and full of rants, so be ready to not fully understand everything he's talking about. But I promise it will be a wild ride that gives us a deeper look into my father's psyche. I first remember seeing Donna in a stand of bamboo on South 2nd Avenue before she met my brother James. She was with a guy named Bobby McGee. She had her top off and they were kissing. When she and my brother started seeing each other, I remember her brother telling me how Donna and her sister were made to sleep with and have sex with their dad. I tried to tell my brother, but he never listened. Donna was seen with many different males. She later told me she craved sex and my brother just couldn't satisfy her. It was later learned that she had sex with just about every male she met. She approached me many times but I treated her as a sister. I knew she had had sex with her brother in an attempt by my brother to get out of marrying her. She was only 14 at the time, and it would have been child molestation by the law. I knew that my brother and she were having affairs with other partners from the start. My brother bragged on it. I didn't know what to do, so I did nothing. I did not know about our cousin Frank and or Mooney until after he had shot her. The day he shot Donna was a strange one. It felt odd up till the shooting. I had warned Donna not to play games with James as he had always shown his uncontrollable violence since we were children. He gave me the money to go get pizza and take the kids with me. As we were in the Jeep and ready to leave, I heard a short scream and headed for the front door. I heard the first pop noise. As I opened the bedroom door, the second shot went off. Then he cocked the hammer back for the third shot. I could see Donna with her back to James and slumped over, but trying to get up. She didn't say anything. I reached out and grabbed the gun from my brother and started yelling at him to get him out of the trance he appeared to be in. I removed all the shells from the gun and went back to Donna to start first aid. I could see the two bullet holes in her back, but no exit holes. I removed her blouse to stop the bleeding. I called Shirley to pick up the kids and remove the guns. I called Bob from next door to take Donna to the hospital so I could stay with my brother. After the police came, I stayed with him until he was charged with attempted murder and arrested. After he got out of jail, he was going to kill one of her boyfriends. He locked me out of the house, so I removed the valve stems from his Jeep. Later, Salt River fired him, and he took a bus to Flagstaff, leaving a suicide note and a tape recording, which I still have a copy of to this day. He confesses all that I have previously written. I contacted Salt River and talked them into reinstating him. 
Donna called and threatened to kill me several times. The two asked me to set up counseling for them, which I did. They got back together for a while, but separated again and divorced. I stood by my brother until he asked me to go to the parking lot at Western Electric so he could shoot one of Donna's boyfriends. I refused, and he became angry with me. Donna also became angry after she found out that I had discovered her past and all the men she'd been with. Both seemed to turn on me, as to blame me. One day, my father approached me to tell me that James thought I had an affair with Donna, and that James used his tape recording equipment to make up a tape with my voice on it, making it sound like Donna and I were having secret meetings. The tape James played for me was more than obvious of what he had done. I will probably never know why he did what he did. I will probably never know why Donna did what she did. All I do know is that I never had sex with Donna, Jody, Barbara Harless, Barbara Mooney, or all of Cheryl's sisters as has been told. I have always been aware of the attraction these women had for me, but I have only been in love twice in my life. I love Cheryl too much to take these women up on their offers. These women include Donna Turney, Barbara Harless, Barbara Mooney, Jody Prophet, Maria Floyd, Teresa, and her sister or cousin, Donna, Phyllis, Mary, Glenda, Peggy Turney, and a great many women who were unhappily married. Jody Prophet was the closest I came, but due to my loyalty to a cousin who later held me responsible for the affair she had with James in front of Peggy while they thought she was sleeping, Peggy and I both agreed it would be the wrong timing, because she was hurt after what James had done. I gave Peggy a great deal of credit for her character. While she was in Young and James here, I saw him with several other women. For Judy, I wish her happiness, because had there been anyone that I would have considered, it would have been her. And at times, I do think of her offer. At the time, I felt sorry for her, because I had seen Frank with other women while playing music in the bars. I could never understand how a man could cheat on a wife as pretty as Judy, especially with women as fat and ugly as they were. One of the reasons I stopped going on hunts with Frank or James was because of the times they'd take women with them. I was blamed for the affairs James and Judy had. I was never aware it was going on. Johnny told me of seeing a man with a wife who told me that he saw Donna and Frank kissing in the pool in James's backyard. And Donna said she loved Frank. My Barbara was the first true returned love I have ever experienced, and I'll never feel that again. I have heard these accusations all my life. People have something, I guess. The first time I was shot at going to Young, I thought it to just be an accident. Then it happened several times. After I learned that Mooney was asked to beat me up while I was in Holbrook, and then many others came out of the woodwork for no reason, I began to realize it was James. The last one told me no man should screw another man's wife, especially his brother's. Then when I saw the antenna pole had been hacksawed, I realized he would never stop with his insane attempts. He and I both know it's not over Donna, but what I know about him, and the day of the shooting, and all of his other behavior to include the alleged suicide of Donnie. Donnie's death came because James knew that and Donnie were having anal sex with one another, and that he had been molested by Donnie and or both. I didn't realize what I had done by giving my brother my books and other information on crimes and crime scenes until after I had completed my investigation of Donnie's death. The crime scene showed that another party was involved in the shooting. The closeness of the other person gave me the impression that it was someone Donnie knew. A check of the drug people Donnie ran with were only users and not sellers as James had tried to get me to believe. A check on the times given to me by James gave him plenty of time to have committed the crime and left to set up his alibi. James knows that I know this. He also knows that I took the test for Salt River so he could get a job, because he couldn't pass the test. He also knows that I saved his job when he got caught turning his electric meter around, and that he watched while Wayne had sex with Donna, and that he was running drugs with Paul. These are the reasons he had done all that he could to turn my family against me. I have never felt as though I was completely accepted as a member of the family. The fact that Bud was my father never meant anything to me. Only the actions of the people I grew up with. The fact I love them is all that matters. 
The fact they chose to believe my insane brother or Jeff means very little to me now. I was born alone, and I will die alone. But I have lived my life with truth and reality that what I have done, I did it for real, and with sincere effort with the talent I was born with, not lies or asking someone else to do it for me, then claim I did it on my own. I played music with my father as an equal. I became an electrician with my ability. I roofed the same and everything I did on my own. I was never ashamed by my family or the fact that we were raised as white trash, but I was always proud to be an American, until recently. I'm beginning to believe my brother was right when he said nice guys finish last. He has lied, stole, killed, molested, and only profited from them. Maybe he is right, but I'll never be able to change. If you could only see the looks on the faces of so many throughout the years with anyone that offered, you would be amazed. I am proud to say that although I have had many opportunities, I have not killed or had sex with any of the women mentioned before. Whether you believe me or not no longer matters to me. This is for my children, so they will know the truth. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Okay. I know that was a lot, so thank you for getting through that with me. I don't know how much truth is in this essay, but let's break this down a bit. My father claims to not have had sex with Donna or any of his first wife's sisters, but according to numerous witnesses, this is a lie. While he was a cop, my father sexually assaulted his first wife's younger sister after handcuffing her to a bed. She was only 16 at the time. When he was confronted, he claimed to be sleepwalking. My father would later do something similar to Alyssa when she was about the same age. And not too long after the encounter with that sister, he threw his wife's other sister down on the bed and attempted to kiss and fondle her, but she put up a fight and he stopped. Like I mentioned before, this is a pattern that we will continue to discuss in future episodes as we uncover more of these types of relationships. The next item to address is the shooting. Now, what happened between James and Donna, we may never know. James claimed self-defense, that Donna was going for a gun they had in the closet when he took his shots. Donna claims she was attacked. I'm honestly unsure of how to tell this story, and I also find myself debating the relevance in telling the details. What I find to be important here is that my father was involved with attempting to alter the crime scene in James's favor. I've heard different stories about how, that my father grabbed a knife and put it in Donna's hand, that he pocketed the gun shells, and of course, what he admits in the essay, that he was attempting to remove the kids from the house during the incident, supposedly allowing James the privacy to kill Donna, and that he called his sister Shirley to pick up the guns, by which all accounts appears to be true. Again, As much as I'd be interested in nailing down these exact details, I think the big takeaway from this is the extent to which the Turney family will go to protect their own. My cousin David can also attest to this mentality. You know, the Turneys, um, from my understanding, the way my mom explained the Turney background, they have a weird uh, sense of blood, you know. uh, They may hate each other, but they'll back each other up, you know. And the accusation that perhaps my Uncle James killed his stepson is chilling when we are considering that my father most likely killed his stepdaughter. Before investigating Alyssa's case more heavily, I knew almost nothing of Donnie. I think I had heard his name maybe once or twice. So here's me talking to my cousin Jamie more about Donnie and his death. I mean, if you don't mind me asking, how did Donnie die? A gunshot wound. But I was told the trajectory couldn't physically have been possible to inflict on himself. What were you told? Can you say a little bit more about that? Yeah, I was told that it was from the back side of the head at a position that somebody coming up behind you would have done, not somebody trying to shoot themselves would have done. 
Why would somebody who's going to shoot themselves shoot themselves from behind? Is my thought. Correctly, it wasn't direct center back, but it was it was side back. It, it, the, and and to this day, nobody's been able to tell me this because they didn't test for it. But supposedly, they always test in a suicide situation for gun residue on the hand of the person. That wasn't done in Donnie's case. Why? Why? My dad cleaned up the mess because he did it right on his property, right out in front of one of the trees that was close to the front of the house. My dad cleaned up the mess. He said that he did it so that Peggy wouldn't have to come and see it because she was coming. They were coming back that day or coming up that day or whatever. She was gone. How convenient is that? But she was coming back that day or she was going to get there that day. And he didn't want her to see, so he cleaned it up so she wouldn't have to do it. So that was his story to the police department, the sheriff. They don't have police. The sheriff's department was that he cleaned up what happened so she wouldn't have to experience that. Well, and where was the note found? said they found it. She never, she told me that they told her at some point it was kept on top of the refrigerator and then it went missing and they don't know where it went, but she supposedly never read it. She, she believes that they had one, but she doesn't know what was said in it. Just that Donnie basically was confessing that he was going to kill himself. Always in that compete. Interesting. This isn't a normal family situation in which you're wondering, like, which one of the 25 murders that my dad talked about could be true. Like, <laughs> There's there's so there's so many stories like this that it's highly unlikely to me that not one of them is true. I will tell you this, and like I said, I, I don't know everybody else's. I don't, and I can't even share you from their perspective. I know that a lot of them, like your brothers, want to cover it up, want to just say it didn't happen or go on with their lives as though it didn't happen, even if they're not going to say it didn't happen. They just don't want to talk about it. They don't want to have that open dialogue. But, I mean, until until we look at this the way it is supposed to until we you know start looking at this one page at a time one thing at a time there's no way to connect the dots. there's so many moving pieces to it there's so many different stories but these are stories that i think fit in donnie's death is another question mark but i think between these two essays it's safe to say that my father had a very strange infatuation with his brother's wife donna that spanned decades and influenced future relationships with married and underage women Similar to the way that my father would later obsess over my and Alyssa's mother, and then Alyssa, due to their similarities, my father also had a strange encounter with Donna and James's daughter, Jamie. My father was married to Cheryl from 1970 to 1979. During this time, they had my three older brothers, Rhett, James, and Michael Jr. The incident you're about to hear happened after my father and Cheryl divorced, and he asked Jamie to babysit the boys for the summer. Okay, that I was about 13. Whatever, I was born in 67, so what is that, about 70, 1980, maybe, 81? So back between there, um, there was a time when my sister was the babysitter for the boys all the time. She was uh, Michael James and Red's babysitter, and during the summers and stuff. Well, after she obviously ran away, um, that position was taken by other people, and I couldn't to this day tell you who that was, but I came in to the picture at, um, at 13. And they finally thought I was old enough to be in the house and take care of the kids by myself. But I was so excited to be able to spend that summer at your dad's and with uh, my cousins. I mean, they just had, uh, they had just, you know, yeah, it was just a bachelor's pad. Because it was just your dad, it was Brett, James, Mike. It was just the boys, you know, in this house. But, you know, remarkably, that house always felt clean. It always looked clean. I mean, your dad was relentless about making sure everything was done, the housework, the, the laundry, the, um, the house was always picked up, it always smelled good. They had this great blue carpet, I remember, and, um, in their house, and I just, I always thought how much I just loved being in their house. When we go to their house, I didn't want to leave their house. So when I got invited that summer to babysit, <clears throat> I was so excited, um, and they had a doughboy pool back then, you know, the above ground pool in the backyard, so. <laughs> It was going to be a great summer, you know. I was just stoked. Um, and I did. It was Everything was going fine. Your dad, he worked. He'd come home. He had this uh, garage of his out, out there at the time. It was set up like a dojo. You know what a dojo is? Yeah, yeah, like a, like a martial arts studio. Yeah, so he had it set up like that. So your dad would go out there and he'd do his workouts and stuff. And he'd do his, you know, whatever it was he did out there. I don't know, karate routine. He was very physically fit back, in the, at, back at that time. He was very working out. Um, but anyway, he was just always out there making sure he was taking care. He'd have the boys out there sometimes, and 
kind of wrestling with him and stuff. And um, I seem to remember him teaching them martial arts. I don't remember. I wasn't there for their actual lessons. But just, you know, rough it up. Just rough and tumble with Dad. So they were all three very attached to their dad, though, and it was pretty cute. And um, he called him Sir or Mr. He said, Mr. Turney, Mr. Turney. Or he called him Sir, Sir. He spoke to them that all the time. And I always thought that was pretty cool that he addressed them that way. And then, because for me, as a kid, keeping in mind, I was called, you know, dumb fuck, stupid asshole, retard. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. All, all kinds of really, really good names. So it was kind of cool to have a dad call him a kid. Um, you know, something that seemed like it was a sign of respect. Um, and he, I never saw him smack him. I mean, I think if, if he, do he beat him or, or spank him, I never saw it. So uh, I do remember him saying he was going to take the belt to him. He would threaten him a lot, but of course that took place in my home too. And I never physically saw it happen, but I, I imagine they probably did get spanked. Our family chose corporal punishment as a way of managing. Certainly wasn't abusive like my dad. My dad got out of control. I mean, you know, we all have scars on our body here and there and places on our backs and legs and where he just, you know, was a little too drunk doing it, whipped us a little too long. So again, that was my first time in their home for more than, you know, 24-hour period staying the night that I had recalled. And um, so I, I just never saw it. But, and the boys were actually pretty good overall. I mean, I mean you know, they, they were typical kids. They had their days, they had their moments, but um, generally if your dad told them to do something, they were on it, you know, whether it was picking up the room or, you know, whatever he told them to do. So, good kids, good home, good dad. Everything looked from the outside and from the inside when I was there. Um, like a great place to live, you know, and those boys were happy. Um, they got to see their mom not as much as they wanted to back then. I think your dad had, um, I think he had, like, primary custody, I'm not sure, but, but yeah, so by all accounts, their home was normal, as far as normal could be after divorce. These kids were well adjusted, uh, you know, your dad seemed like he had his shit together, he was, like, trying to, you know, regroup his life and get everything together, and then, like I said, what happened was, uh, at least on the occasion this happened to me, it was early on in the summer, not, well, about the, probably closer to the middle of summer, I've probably been there, I want to say almost a month when this happened. Um, and so he'd been outside working out. He came home from work, and he was outside, he was working out in his dojo or whatever, and he came in, he was all sweaty, and uh, he laid down on the carpet in the living room, and he asked if I could walk on his back. Well, in our family, people walk on their back, we all tend to have to back from home. So it was like, not a big deal, and so I, you know, kind of stepped on his back, I didn't pull on, walk on, so I was 13, but I kind of used my foot and kind of cracked his back a little bit. Then he asked me if I wouldn't mind massaging his back a little bit, and I didn't think anything weird of it. Again, this wasn't anybody that had ever shown me any reason why touching him was weird. And um, and there was nothing weird about the act of the masking either, because in our family, we watched, I watched all kinds of massage each other's back, step on each other's back, and make cousins, you know, sisters and brothers. We did it for our dad all the time because his back was always messed up. Um, so anyway, I... You know, did what he asked, and it wasn't a big deal, it wasn't weird. And then he put his shirt back on, and because he's taking his shirt off as he got out of the workout, and he put his shirt back on. And he didn't say anything more. That was it. I think he, and from there, went and made dinner, you know. So he basically had dinner, and um, that's not as usual. Did he watch a little TV or cable at the time back then? I think it was HBO or some kind of crap. And uh, on TV, it was we were watching something, and then everybody basically got the boys ready for bed, but just get both and help them for showers and make sure they got their pajamas on, hopefully brush their teeth, even though they'd be in the bathroom for long I never know what they're doing, but I uh, got them off the bed, and then I basically went into my room. My room, I think, ended up being your room later, Sarah, at that house there on uh, Little Rita. Your dad had the bigger bedroom across the way. I don't know if he kept it, but last time I saw him, when I was an adult, he was still in there, and he had just boxes and boxes of crap. He just, there were files he was keeping and stuff, file court cases he was involved in, and people he was suing, and documents he was keeping. But no, he was in the big bedroom. So yeah, I'm in there, and I'm ready for bed and stuff. And uh, basically, I sat down on the bed, and your dad says, you know, knocked on the door a little bit. And he goes, yeah. I was like, yeah. <laughs> and then he said, uh I opened the door just a little bit and looked in at me, and then he asked me if I want him to massage my back. 
and I looked up at him, and I was, like, creeped out. I mean, really creeped out, because, like, first of all, the adults in our family, no matter what our back situation, I have fully that I've had in my life, had never asked me if they wanted to, if I wanted my back massage, not even my molesting father, um, had never asked me if I wanted my back massage, so that was, you know, weird thing, number one. And the fact that he was coming in at night after the boys had been asleep, um, and it was just him and I up was weird. And my room was dark, you know, because I was clearly getting ready for bed, but my room was, was dark um, when he walked in. So I had Cam there standing in the doorway with the lights in the hall and back. And so that was weird for me. But then he had, you know, this, this the one look that I could see on his face was kind of like, you know, the kind of look I'd seen on my father's face. And it was, you know, kind of like I want something. And um, that's all he said was, he, you know, he would like me to massage his boots. Well, I think he said it feels good or something like that. It feels pretty good. But I think he was talking about, at that point, I mean, to be perfectly honest, I was still recoiling. I was literally backing up on bed. <laughs> and then physically recoiling from him. Um, and I was like, no, no. You know, that's all I remember saying was, no, no. He shut the door and he went away. And he did not come back again. Now, that would not have been the case in my house. In my house, I had to sleep with all my clothing on. I had to sleep with seven pairs of underwear on. I had to sleep with several pairs of pajamas on. I had to sleep with my blankets literally tied and knots around my body. I would wake up and I would be asleep in my closet with the doors closed. I had no way to lock my bedroom door. My dad would come in and I would try to hide from him. Or I would try to put on as much clothing as possible or tie my blanket so that at least if he was trying to molest me, I could feel him doing it. Because I would wake up sometimes in the bathtub. He was drugging me. He was drugging me so that I would sleep. Yeah. And I would wake up sometimes in the bathtub to him giving me a bath and telling me that I had a fever and he was trying to pull my fever off. Well, what he was trying to do was clean me up either before or after he molested me. So I, I feared your dad would come back in that night. I literally stayed awake as long as my eyes would allow me to and watched that door watch the light at the door until I saw the light go off with the nervousness that he was going to come in that door, that he was going to come from the queue. And he didn't. But I told my stepmom the next morning about it, and when I relayed the whole story, I came to my room and asked if I wanted a massage, and I was open. Next thing I know, somebody's at my door, turned, telling me to get my things, and I'm packing my stuff, and I'm out of there. I was literally out of there the next day within a matter of hours of me telling her that this had happened. And um, I, like I said, I couldn't come back. Your cat was telling me, well, you're going to be you know, just what you did, you know, what you did to yourself. And I was just like, what? You know, I was just like, I, I, I wasn't even sure why I was needing me to move out, to be honest. Yes, I had told her with my concern, um, but it hadn't occurred to me that he would ever act on it. I guess I just wanted somebody to tell that to because, I didn't know what to do with it. Yeah. I was 13 years old, and my uncle did something he'd never done before, which reminded me of what my father was doing. Now, keep in mind, my stepmom, I, I hadn't told her back then that my dad was going to me. And um, I guess I thought she knew, <laughs> to be honest. Um, but it was a, it, I was 13 years old, you know, turning into a young woman myself. And so this was me telling my stepmom that somebody did something that made me feel weird. And when, she, when I ended up leaving the house, as suddenly as I did, it, it scared me more than anything. I thought it was trouble. I thought I'd done something, you know. I, for the longest time, I honestly thought maybe my uncle had said it hurt the kids. I mean, because nobody talked to me about it. It was never talked about, not with your dad, not with them. I was just suddenly removed from the home and never allowed over there again until, as an adult, they came back. We are only two episodes in, and we have explored the possibility that my father made inappropriate advances towards Alyssa, our cousin Jamie, his sister-in-law Donna, and two other sisters-in-law, in addition to a slew of women that he named in the essay. We have also explored the possibility that sexual abuse could have been extremely common in my family, beginning when my father was only a child. And it seems that we've established that by all accounts, my grandfather, uncle, and father seem to have, or at one point had, a very strong propensity for violence. But like Jamie said, in the midst of all this violence and drama, 
My brothers do report having a rather normal childhood with a very dedicated father. To be fair, when I was going through the home videos, there are countless hours of my father being a good dad to my brothers. There are home videos of vacations. What's going to be at the Grand Canyon, James? What's going to be at the Grand Canyon? I don't know. People, and horses, and cows, and sheep, and all kinds of things. There are countless hours of baseball games and wrestling tournaments and everything in between. He took the time to teach them lessons about trying their best, and my brothers genuinely cared about my father being proud of them. My name is James T. Turner. I'm four years old, and I just raced in a PXA big wheel race at yeah. Union Hills, 35th Union Avenue, Hills. or 43rd Avenue in Union Hills. And I raced three times. I won first place two times, second place the third time, and I won me a first place trophy. Now, let's see that trophy, James Turner. See that? Hey, we're really proud of you guys. I got seven place and two trophies, and my dad's proud of me, and I win it at... Is that our brother, Red? Yeah. Red. I like the race, but I'll never win again. Red Turner, I don't want to hear that. You talk to me later, I'll shut you up. I did not... I didn't do as well this time, Dad, but I'll bet you I do better next time. I didn't do as well this time, Dad, but I'll do it next time. I learned a lot this time, didn't we, Rex? Yes. Now here's Porky T-Turn. And as both David and Jamie claimed, my father always included the cousins in on this fun. What do you got to say? Are you going to race next time? Yeah. You going to win? Yeah. You going to pedal, Mike? Yes. Huh? Yeah. You going to get you a big wheel pretty soon? John, let's see your face. I can't see you. Say something good, boy. How about yourself? How'd you do, John? Oh, I didn't do so good, but you bet I'll be out there again. What'd you come in? What, what place did you get first time? Second. And second time I got second, and last time I got third. That's pretty good. Next time I get third. Yep. All right, that's good enough, gang. Got something else you want to say, John? Hi, you, No, just thanks a lot for taking us. But I think we all know by now that there was a seedy underbelly to this entire timeline. For example, listen to this clip from my brother James's third birthday party. Say thank you, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. What's your name? Jody. Jody what? How old are you? Eight. Eight? Are you eight years old? Hey, Tracy. How come you're so pretty? Ooh, I can't hear you. I don't know. You don't know? Huh? You're not pretty. Sherry. Sherry what? I know you can figure it out. Look at me. I can't see your face. Okay. How old are you, Sherry? Seven. The tape then cuts to about nine months later, where my father's interviewing another girl. How old are you, Michelle? Eight. Eight. Well, you're pretty old. Michael, cut it up. Pretty. The tape then cuts again to the next Easter with another girl. Oh, what's your name? Little girl. Tammy what? Tammy, you're awful pretty. Where do you come from? Hey. What? What? In a few years, Michael Turney would meet my and Alyssa's mother, Barbara. He would pile his three boys in the back of his truck, along with their new brother, John, while three-year-old Alyssa sat up front between the new couple, ecstatic to start their new life together as a blended family. Next time on Voices for Justice. And the minute the divorce, I mean, basically, the divorce was final with Steve and she married my next day. Wow. I didn't know that. I didn't know it was that quick. quick. Yeah, so I mean, you were really close to her, so one thing I have to ask is my dad always says, you know, Alyssa had a learning disability. No. That's what everyone says is no. Absolutely no. not. Absolutely not. There was a big need for him to, to feel like he had that control. In reality, this was a lot of what your mom and I talked about and a lot of the reason that she had kind of decided it was time 
for her to take you kids and go was just the paranoid behavior, just the things that were happening that made no sense. I wanted to talk about this, this union and these, you know, how we the next cop and everybody was out to get him and there was all these conspiracies going on around him. You know, so I mean, that was my first experience. And Kevin and I were just like, oh my God, we don't want this. What did Barbara do? <laughs> you know? And, um... I loved her to dance. She was my friend. Yeah. You guys were best friends. I mean, you raised, you raised Alyssa. Yeah. You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply.